Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. Many of you know Dr. Steve Lee. Uh, He's been the lead pastor of Emmanuel Community Church, our partner church in the network for the last uh, five years. Steve, how long have you been married to Betty? 20 years. (laughs) I won't tell her about the slight delay in that answer. 20 years, and they have five children. And one other thing to note is he's a really good ping pong player. One of my life missions is to one day beat him in ping pong. I don't know if it'll ever happen, but can we just welcome uh, Dr. Steve here this morning? Morning, everyone. It's great to be here at Harvest. Um, We had a joint service not too long ago where my brother Dave talked about this whole idea of Thrive as a network and sort of what are the things coming down the road um, that you'll tangibly be able to experience this partnership of churches with Harvest and Emmanuel. And this is definitely one of them, um, this idea of uh, just even being able to swap pulpits. And if my brother were to be in a particularly busy or difficult season that uh, we would be able to just exchange pulpits and speak at one another's churches. And so give me a call a little while ago and just pointed out to me how uh, he was just really tired of you guys and felt that uh, he just needed a break. And, uh, and so uh, I'm just kidding. He's, uh, he's obviously uh, will be returned next week with joy uh, to you. But um, it is a real joy every time I have an opportunity to preach here at Harvest. The, the text that I want to read this morning might seem like kind of a strange choice here, uh, but it comes from Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to, 20, uh, yeah, 26 to 20, uh, 39. And it's the story of what's typically called the Gerasene demoniac. And I'd like to take a look at it together and uh, see what we can learn from this a really dramatic story of a demon possession that happened in the life of Jesus. And so it reads, They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them. And he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. 
When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Amen. Let's pray. God, would you open up our eyes to uh, be able to grasp and understand the meaning of this text and help us to see um, what it means for our life as we encounter challenges and difficulties and face obstacles that often challenge the very limits of our faith. Open our eyes to see Christ, who is so much greater than those problems. For we pray these things in his name. Amen. The story of the Gerasene demoniac begins right after one of the well, more well-known miracles that Jesus did, which was the calming of the sea. Uh, as you may know, they gotten into the boat, Jesus and his disciples, and they were sailing across the Sea of Galilee when this storm hit them. And this was not a minor storm. It was said it was so severe that even among them, these fishermen who had fished these seas for years were terrified and thought that this was the end of their life until Jesus rebuked the storm and calmed it. And as if that wasn't enough drama for a day, as soon as they reach shore and they dock the boat, the disciples and Jesus are immediately confronted by the most intense demonstration of demon possession recorded in the Gospels. A man had come under such total domination by evil spirits that he had in essence been reduced to a madman running around naked among tombstones. Matthew tells us that this man was violent and he posed such a danger to the townspeople that they avoided the area where he was roaming. Mark tells us he was also a harm to himself and that every day they could hear him screaming and crying and actually cutting himself, self-mutilation. And despite these repeated attempts to restrain him with chains, he demonstrates the supernatural strength and breaks these chains over and over again and runs wild. So this man confronts Jesus as he docks on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus immediately tells him, come out of this man. And immediately this demon seems to have recognition of Jesus' authority. Because the man responds to Jesus, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. Then Jesus asks him, what is your name? And the response is a chilling one. Because this man says, legion. Or, as Mark records it, my name is Legion. It's clear that it is not the man himself who is speaking to Jesus at this point, but the evil spirit inside of him. It is also clear that it is not a single spirit that is talking now, but it is many spirits. We don't know the exact number, but to ballpark it, a Roman legion consisted of 6,000 soldiers. 
And so you get a sense of the enormous infestation of demons that must have been torturing this man. And the demons believe that Jesus is going to condemn them into this abyss. And so they beg him for permission to inhabit this herd of pigs that are feeding nearby on the hillside. And Jesus grants this request. And the demons leave the man and they enter this herd of pigs. And the next thing is a rather dramatic scene as these pigs hurl themselves over the cliffside and in essence commit suicide off the steep embankment, drowning in the Sea of Galilee. Now, I got to tell you, <laughs> when I read a passage like this, even as a pastor, uh, I have a lot of questions. And the problem with stories like this is that we can go down a lot of rabbit holes and a lot of unhelpful paths with unwarranted speculations about what's going on here that the story itself really doesn't address. Uh, for me personally, some of them are like, how did this man become afflicted by so many demons? I mean, was he involved with some really shady stuff or something like that? Or what, what, what exactly did this guy do to allow this to happen to him? Why did the demons want to possess these pigs? And frankly, more confusing, why did Jesus grant them permission? Why did the pigs all commit suicide after they got inhabited by these demons? And then, frankly, what happened to the demons after the pigs died? I mean, are they here with us? I, I don't know. I don't, um, listen, while there are a lot of interesting and tantalizing questions when you read a story like this, these are not actually really the important ones to answer. Um, in fact, the Bible is surprising in that it doesn't really provide us with a clear answer to any of them. Throughout the Bible, we see stories like this that open the spiritual realms to us. And we realize that there's this whole invisible realm going around us that we're not even aware of. The first thing that I could say is this. Without God's revelation, we have no understanding of how the spiritual realms operate. We would be completely in the dark as to the nature of the spiritual battle that is waging around us if the Bible didn't tell us so. And you can see that the neighbors of this man are utterly clueless as to what's going on in this man. They, they don't know what to do. They don't understand about demonic forces. And so the only solution they have is tie the guy up, you know, chain him. That's all they knew, know what to do with this guy. And it's pretty unsuccessful. And I would argue that despite all of the knowledge we've gained in the 2,000 years since this story occurred, and all the things we know about science and all these other fields of study, in truth, I'm not really convinced we know all that much more about the spiritual realms than they do. You know, I mean, we live in an age of science, but it's interesting to me how much the spiritual world still attracts so many people. There's such a curiosity about it. But the problem is without some revelation from God, all of that stuff remains shrouded in mystery and often in truth distorted by lies. And so even as modern people, supposedly people of science, 
we know this clearly in popular culture. There's a lot of dabbling in the spiritual, isn't there? There's a lot of dabbling in the occult from astrological readings to tarot cards to Ouija boards to even psychic mediums who will tell you that for a price they can communicate with your deceased relatives. And some of these mediums have even reached celebrity status and have their own television shows. And what the Bible seems to tell us is you don't really understand the dark powers that you're playing with when you're engaging in activities like this. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 16 to 17, we find these interesting words. They made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to demons, which are not God. Gods they had not known. Gods that recently appeared. Gods your father did not fear. You see, what the book of Deuteronomy is saying here is, these Israelites were worshiping what they thought were idols. They were just adopting all these other gods from the pagan countries around them. But what the writer says is, they thought they were worshiping these idols. But in truth, they were worshiping demons disguised as these idols. They were pulling people away from God. Now, listen, I don't know if some of you are getting a little uncomfortable in your chair. Uh, going, boy, Pastor Dave doesn't really preach like this, you know. Uh, <laughs> what's going on here? I thought they were brothers. Um, listen, in truth, let's be honest here. I think in our modern days, a lot of people laugh at the notion of demons. And in truth, they laugh at the notion of evil. For many people in our 21st century, they would see evil as a pre-modern, ancient, ignorant idea. You know, it's sort of like uh, because they didn't know psychology or sociology or medicine, you know. But the Bible tells us that evil is really very real. There is such a thing as evil in our world and even evil spirits. Um, you know, when I was on this mission trip in Burundi some years back, uh, I, I was going around to these villages preaching, these outlying villages and these crusades. And so I was asked to go speak at this one that was kind of far away. And before I did, the translator, the African translator that was going to accompany me to this crusade, pulled me aside and had this very concerned look on his face. And he said, this village we're going to today is unlike any of the villages you've been to so far. And he said, uh, this area is known for uh, a lot of demonic influence. And so he said, you know, we got to pray a lot before we go there, and you have to be ready for this. And he said, uh, uh, there's, and he said you know, there's a lot of prostitution there. There's a lot of alcoholism and drug abuse, and a lot of horrible things happen in this village. I didn't know what to make of that when he told me that, to be honest with you. And frankly, as an American, I was pretty skeptical. I thought, well, this is the African take on it. You know, it's probably because there's prostitution and drug use and rape and all this stuff that, you know, they're attributing it to demons because that's just how Africans think, that there's a demon behind every bush. So we get there to this village, and the second we get there, I don't know how to describe it, but I felt this heaviness in my heart suddenly overcome me. And it was literally like you could feel this shroud 
over this village. And in most of the villages that I was used to going, I was always greeted with joy and happiness and great hospitality. But when I entered this village, there were just a lot of cold stares that I received from the villagers. And it was a really difficult first crusade that we had that morning. And then right after that service was done, um, I just broke out in this really high fever. And I began to have body aches and I was shivering and, the, and my teeth were chattering. I was uh, really, I thought I actually I had gotten malaria or something like that. And I started having this pounding headache so that I had to just lay down for the next three hours before the afternoon worship happened. And then I managed to get up out of where that bench that I was lying on and preach through the afternoon crusade. And it was really difficult preaching through that. And I got back to the mission base and by that evening, the fever had broken, and I felt completely fine. And after going through that experience, I didn't, I didn't have a category for an experience like that as a modern American. I didn't know what sense to make of that, what I had just gone through. But the Bible tells us that there is a spiritual battle going on around us all the time in the invisible realms. Now, while the Bible does open our eyes to the reality of demonic powers, it's also noteworthy that it doesn't obsess about them. In fact, what I find very interesting is that there's really no instruction in the Bible that is like a step-by-step how-to for casting out demons. You know, there, there actually really isn't anything like that in Scripture. As C.S. Lewis points out, we often make the equal and opposite mistakes of either denying demonic existence and acting like it's not there, or we have this excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And those are two errors that we can make when it comes to dealing with demonic influence. Now, when the Bible talks about demonic influence, it speaks about it in kind of two different languages. The first way it says is that it literally says in the Greek, the person has a demon. And that's the way it describes this man. In Luke. Other times it says this person is demonized. This person is demonized. Both of these terms describe a condition, though, in which a demon enters a person and takes a certain level of control over them, and then through that control, tormenting them through typically physical sickness or mental anguish. Usually, one of those two expressions. And regardless of how it is specifically expressed, there seems to be a common endpoint that the demons are after. And it seems to be this. Because of their hatred of God, their ultimate goal in possessing a person is to destroy the image of God in that person. To destroy that which makes a person dignified and beautiful and worthy uh, to bear the image of God. And this is what happens to this man. When these demons enter him, they basically reduce him to an animal running around naked, screaming and howling like an animal among gravestones, terrorizing other people and cutting himself, self-mutilating. Kent Hughes comments on it. In his lucid moments, he surely realized how repulsive, unloved, and unwelcome he was. He was dehumanized, animalized, marginalized, and both frightening and fearful. What incredible misery. Um, 
Now, I would argue that even in our day, this is still the work of demons that are affecting human beings. It may not be as dramatic as a demon possession like we see here in this story, but I believe that under demonic influence, people are driven to self-destructive behavior, whether it's alcoholism or drug abuse or gambling or pornography or eating disorders. And typically through these addictions, the victim spirals down into a pattern of isolation and destruction of relationships and then self-hatred and then eventually helplessness and hopelessness. And I think this hopelessness is very key because when you get to that point of despair, when you reach that point of losing all hope, that's when often you enter into this phase of fatalistic recklessness because at that point, the bottom has dropped out. There's no bottom anymore for how low you can go. Now, let me say something. I am not saying that anytime somebody struggles with a drinking problem or drugs, that it's demonic. But at the same time, I don't think as Christians it's biblical for us to discount it as though there are no such things as demons. Ephesians chapter 6 Verse 12 says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The way that we do battle against these demonic attacks is really beyond the scope of the sermon, but I want to just at least leave you with this thought, is that I think often when we see somebody struggling with something, I think, especially as modern Christians, it's very easy to sort of minimize it and say, you know, I, I don't think it's that big a deal. I think often there's this surface level illusion that the things that people are really struggling with are pretty easily solvable, especially in our day and age with all of the weight of science at our advance and advances we've made in understanding human behavior. And we think, you know, all the guy really needs is a few counseling sessions and it'll straighten them out, you know? Or maybe that person just needs some tough love. Show them enough tough love and that person will be good, good to go. But I think in truth, when we look biblically, often those behaviors that we see on the surface, underneath it, it's the tip of the iceberg. And there are often much darker things going on in the heart of that person. And the truth is that often it is only by God's power that person is really going to be healed. It requires nothing less than the authority of Jesus Christ to release that person from the bondages that they found themselves in. What it requires is prayer. In Luke eight thirty five, it says, And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed in his right mind. The people that were tending the sheep uh, and uh, the, tending the pigs and lost, their, uh, lost the animals, they, they went back and they told everyone and the town was in utter shock. And they all come back and they see this guy that was a raving lunatic, naked, screaming like an animal, cutting himself. Now he's totally clothed. He's behaving like a normal human being. And frankly, the people can't even believe their eyes. 
And I want to say something about this is I think if you and I were townspeople in that town, living in that time, um, I think in truth, all of us would have written this guy off as a hopeless case, wouldn't you? I mean, he, he clearly fits into that category of somebody that basically is beyond help, beyond redemption. And in truth, it was more about containing him as a public safety measure. Um, in truth, if we were there at that time, we probably would have treated him just like an animal, like they did. You know, uh, it's, it's not about trying to help him. It's just trying to keep him away from other people. And probably secretly, a lot of them, like probably we would have thought, would have been something like, I just wish this guy would die and leave us alone so that he wouldn't bother us anymore. And so that, frankly, our kids could go outside and play once again and not have to feel like paranoid that this guy is going to attack them. But if the story teaches us anything, I think it is this. That with Jesus, there are no hopeless cases. There is nobody, in other words, that is so far beyond redemption that his love cannot rescue him. And I think this is an important lesson for you and I because if you haven't encountered it already, I guarantee you, you will before your life is over. You're going to encounter some people that you're going to feel like are hopeless cases. And it may not even just be a person. It may be a situation. And what I'm saying is you get to a point where you just don't see any way out. You know, I mean, it, it may be a coworker or a wayward friend. It may be a parent or a child or a spouse. Uh, maybe, frankly, you think of yourself as that hopeless case. Or maybe it's just the situation there's just so much history there. It's just there's so much track record of nothing changing, nothing happening, that just like this demon-possessed man, you kind of look at your life, you kind of look at your marriage, you kind of look at your work situation, your financial situation, and you say, well, I guess this is as good as it's going to get. I guess this is my life. I guess I just got to learn how to live with this. Um. And you know, the truth is, I counsel a lot of Christians that feel that way about their life. You know, there was a, a season when I actually had hope about this, when I actually believed things could change. But I don't think anything's going to change anymore. And so, frankly, uh, I don't even pray. I don't really even ask God anymore. And I think the truth is this. Once you get into that hopelessness, you typically become more a part of the problem than you become part of the solution don't you? Because that's typically when you start withdrawing from that person, when you start reacting toward that person with resentment and anger. And of course, people have free will. And of course, people can turn their backs on God, no matter what grace encounters them. But if you find anything in the pages of the gospel, it is this picture that God brings hope to what seems to be hopeless situations like this man. Jesus has authority over everything. He has the power to change the most stubborn heart and rescue people from the deepest pits that they dug themselves into. That's what I want to ask you this morning is, do you have that hope in what seems to be the darkest situations that you face in your life? 
I think that's what Jesus is calling every believer to, is to believe even in the face of hopeless circumstances. Even when in your heart of hearts, you say that person will never change. That person is just stuck like that. I don't know why, but that person is going to go to their grave like that. What Jesus is inviting us to do is to believe again. And to say, I believe that Christ can make a difference in this situation. Now, it seems like the story ought to end with this wonderful redemption of this man. But what's interesting is it doesn't end there. In verse 35, it says the people went out to see what happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. It's interesting that the response wasn't joy or celebration. It was fear. This is what I love about the Bible is it rings so authentic to me. It rings so true to me that this is an eyewitness account and not myth, not legend. Because if it was a fairy tale, you would have ended it like that, right? You would have ended with everyone happy and celebrating. But because this is an eyewitness account, it tells you in truth what really happened. And the people were not celebrating. They were not happy. It says that they were afraid. And in truth, I don't think this is an unusual reaction when God does his work. That's the exact same way Peter reacted, in fact, when he saw Jesus do that miracle of the large catch of fish. In Luke chapter 8, verses 36 to 37, those who had seen it told the people how the, uh, actually, let's go to, uh, whoops. Actually, I, I, I guess uh, I don't have that slide there. Uh, so basically, Paul, Peter told him, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. That was the, the, the disciple Peter's reaction. Get away from me, Jesus. I feel ashamed when you're near me. And I'm afraid. Uh, but the heart of the problem is found in verses 36 to 37. It says, those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. In other words, there was no faith that went beyond this fear. And so as a result, they asked Jesus to leave. What a tragic end to a story like this. You know, God showed up in their midst and did this amazing miracle of redemption. And instead of receiving this gift from God, because of their fear, they rejected it. And at some level, you may say that makes absolutely no sense. Why in the world would they ask Jesus to leave when he had just solved their biggest problem? that they were having in this entire village. But this is the goofy way that human behavior works. And it goes something like this. Yeah, that demon-possessed guy was giving us a lot of problems. We didn't like him. But there's something about the familiar problem that you feel you can control versus this other problem that you feel you have no control over. And that's exactly how they view Jesus is the truth is, Jesus frightened them more than this demon-possessed man frightened them. Because they felt like, at least we could tie this guy down, all right? At least we could chain him. But this Jesus, he terrifies us. Because we can't control him. We don't know what to do with him. And so in truth, they sent him away. and said, get away from us. We don't want you here. We don't want you. 
And I think in truth, a lot of us live our lives the exact same way. Yeah, I've got problems. Sure, I've got problems. But you know, it's still my life. I'm still in charge. It's like that Invictus poem by William, William Ernest Henley, right? I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You know, the truth is, your family could be disintegrating right in front of you. But at least you're still the head of the household. At least you're the boss. You're the one that gets to call the shots. I think we would rather manage our own problems under our own control because there's something that feels too risky about surrendering our problems into God's hands. There is, in truth, too much risk that we feel in our heart if I let God take control of the situation. And, you know, I do really believe that this is a very common reaction that many of us have when we encounter God, is we're not quite sure. We can see the power. We see what's possible. And yet we're not really quite sure that's what we want. I remember back in the 1980s when I was a high school student, there was this big revival happening among a lot of Korean-American churches here in youth groups. And, you know, crazy stuff was happening on a regular basis. I mean, people were getting gifts of prophecy and tongues, and people were being healed, and a lot of miracles were happening. And uh, it was just insane what was happening in these revival meetings. And, you know, the truth is my brother and I were going to as many of them as we could go. Almost every weekend there was like a revival meeting to go to and somewhere in Chicago. But I still remember if I rewind the tape back then and be honest with myself that even as my brother and I were getting ready to leave the house and head off to these revival meetings, there was quite often this singular moment when I sat there and I wasn't sure I wanted to go anymore. Because in truth, when you went to these revival meetings, you never knew what was going to happen there. And sometimes it was really frightful stuff, scary stuff. I remember after one of them, I was so wrecked that I came home and I threw away all of my rock tapes, you know, every secular tape I owned, and I had hundreds of them. You know, $1,000 worth of songs. And I just threw them all in the trash. And the next day I regretted it. I was like, no, you know, like, why did I throw away that collection? But no, ultimately I, I actually was thankful for that conviction to, to be able to do it. But that's the kind of stuff I wasn't sure I wanted that, you know? Because it felt like you were riding a car and the car was out of control when God took control of your life. You know, it makes me think, about when I did campus ministry for 10 years at U of I. And, you know, you would see these undergrad students whose lives are being flipped upside down. And the main way I interacted with this is when I would be leading these short-term teams to Africa. And, you know, now some of them are getting convicted that God may be giving them a missionary call, so they want to go for a summer and explore that calling and go out there and be missionaries. And you would see these guys that some of them had horrible lives that they were living and their lives are flipped 180 degrees, completely upside down, living for Jesus. But the crazy thing is, often it was met with a lot of anger and fear by their parents. And we would see them sometimes drive all the way down to campus and yell at us and say, what are you doing to my kid? Why are you brainwashing him? Leave him alone. And in truth, I think this, for many of these parents, they had total control over their kids for all of these years. 
And they figured out exactly what this kid is going to be, you know? This kid is going to be a doctor. He's been groomed to be a doctor since primary school. And now the Kai is talking like a crazy person, like he wants to give it all up and be a missionary. And you know, these parents are seeing their fortress crumbling around them. And they don't know what to do. Their kingdom is being torn down. And there is a panic. There is a fear. And let's be honest here. There is something frightening about releasing control into God's hand. I think for a lot of us, we know, I don't think my life is all that great. I do feel like it could be a lot better, but at least it's my life. At least it's the life that I've chosen for myself. At least it's under my decisions, and I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. There's something terrifying about giving it over to God and saying, God, you do what you want with my life because I am wrecking my family. I, don't, I think, actually, I'm not the best influence on my kids. And I, I have some deep insecurities about my parenting because, frankly, I think I'm sinking my marriage and I think I'm as big a part of the problem as I blame my spouse. But there's something still, even at that brink, that holds back and says, I just can't let go. I just can't let go. You know, some years back when I was a bit younger, and our kids were a lot younger, I remember that there was a season like that in my life where I really felt like I was kind of far from God. And there was this time when I was really trying to get back with God and heal this relationship with him and reconnect with him and Somewhere in the midst of these prayers that I was offering to God when I was repenting and coming back to him, I felt God really convict me and saying, you know, Steve, what I want you to pray right now is the prayer of total surrender. I want you to pray and say, God, just do in my life whatever you want to do in my life. I want you to pray that prayer. That's the conviction that I got from the Holy Spirit as I was praying during that season in my life. But here is the thing, is I couldn't pray that prayer. I couldn't pray it. Because in truth, I was just too afraid. I was too afraid of what God may do if I prayed that prayer. You know? And it really revealed a lot about the condition of my heart at that time. What it was really revealing was I didn't trust God enough to pray that prayer. I didn't really trust him. And I, it made me think about my younger years when I was single, when I was a college student. And back then, the kind of bold prayers that I would pray, God, I will burn for you. I will die for you. I will be a missionary. I will go to Africa for you. And he sent me, you know, he actually, he actually called me out on that bluff and he sent me to Africa, you know. He said, I will do anything for you. But this was the truth. Many years later, being married and now having a bunch of little kids running around and having to provide for these kids, I felt like a prayer like that was too risky. It's just too risky. What if God takes my family? What if God wants my kids? I don't know if I could sustain that. And I think that's how the townspeople felt that day in the village. 
None of us are happy about this crazy guy terrorizing us. But at least we can control this problem. But this Jesus, he scares the living daylights out of us. There is a power here that we cannot understand. And we know we're not going to be able to control. So they basically kicked him out and said, please leave us. And like a gentleman, Jesus left. What a sad ending to that story. God had visited them to offer them his power and offer them his grace. And they rejected it because they said, I would rather have control over my life and my world than to allow God to take control and do the work that he needs to do. Let's pray. So we just close in prayer and invite the worship team to come forward and lead us uh, into a bit of response here. I do just want to invite you to just reflect on this a little bit and think about your own life, think about your own circumstances. Maybe you do sort of find yourself in a situation like this where, uh, you know, you just feel so hopeless. There are some things that are going on in your life or people in your life, and you're just at a point where you say, you know, it's never going to get better. This is just as good as it gets. Uh, And, you know, out of that... You, you just, you don't pray. You feel very desperate. You feel resentful and angry. And if there's anything that you can learn from reading through the pages of the Gospels, it is that Jesus has this habit of walking into these hopeless situations, bringing hope. I'm not making you any guarantees that just because you pray, all your problems are going to be instantly solved. Um, sometimes it is true that God is going to ask us to go through seasons of difficulty and pain because he's investing in us, training us and sharpening us through those trials. But I also sincerely believe that God does want to demonstrate his power in many different ways in our lives. And maybe it's our hopelessness, our lack of faith that is resisting that work that God wants to do. And then maybe if I could also offer to you that maybe it's really a control issue for you. There are certain aspects in which you feel that the uh, life that you've built for yourself isn't quite what you were hoping for or expecting. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your career. I don't know. Maybe it's your family, your children, your parents. And uh, the truth is, You really need God to intervene in some pretty big ways in your life. But the real question is, have you invited him with that kind of total surrender? Saying, God, um, I've given up trying to fix this on my own. I've given up with my own solutions. And I need you to come into this in a really big way, in a really strong way. But to pray that prayer is also a prayer of surrender. It's a prayer of letting go. And there's something actually kind of frightening about that. Because maybe part of that letting go, part of that surrender means there's going to have to be some exposure. You know, like you're saying, I'm going to lick this problem. I really am. And years have gone by and you're isolated in your own life of secrecy. And you refuse to get help. You refuse to seek help. But what Jesus is saying is, man, if you really want me to deal with this, do you really want my help? And if you do, 
There has to be a surrender. There has to be a letting go. There has to be a seeking help. Maybe God could do it miraculously. Or maybe God may even want to use the community of his people right here at Harvest, at HCC, to be some of the, a part of the answer to that problem that you're facing. So as we close out our time, I, I just want to invite you to enter into some personal reflection. And could you maybe think about that? Maybe it's not really even you, but it's somebody else that you know is in a really, really hopeless situation. And you don't know how to help that person. You feel like all you can do is put a hand on the shoulder, and maybe cry with them, but you feel so impotent. Say, I don't know how to help you. And that's okay. Just because you're a Christian, you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to be the answer person. Maybe what you could do is bring this to God and say, God, I'm asking you to do a work in this person's life, to really help them in some ways that simply I can't. So would you just pray that for a few minutes and our worship team uh, will come forward and close us out in some songs of response to the Lord. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.